And this starts a subdivision of the section dealing with prophecies against the nations. Many of the prophets have sections like this where they give various judgment oracles against different nations. I think leaving that open somewhat is a good idea. Um, can you, what are some of the other prophets that have sections like this of judgments against the nations? Jeremiah. Obadiah. Obadiah is about a nation, not so much as a section against the nations. Amos. 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 Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Good. And uh, so this is like that. Now there's some general things you can say about sections of judgment oracles against nations. For example, that this shows that God is the Lord of all the nations of the world. He's not just Israel's special God. He actually controls the destinies of all the nations. Um... And it shows that God is impartial in his judgment. He doesn't just judge his people, but he judges all the nations. But I think here in Isaiah, there's probably a special significance to this section. Not that this would be absent from the other prophets. But it really shows how foolish it is to put our trust in any other nation, anything else that isn't God. Why trust a nation that God's going to bring down? <laughs> that, that doesn't seem very stable or secure to rely on. And so I think that's perhaps a lot of the point. I think we're going to see that borne out in quite a few of these judgment oracles in one sense or another. But you really see you need to put your confidence in God and not in the nations. Now, he begins with the nation of Babylon. Babylon was an old empire going all the way back to the biblical event of the Tower of Babel, Babylon, and has a lot of culture and history and really almost epitomizes the world, worldly glory, worldly power. If you go back to the Tower of Babel, man's effort to try to create his own security and stability by his own resources began almost in Babylon. Babylon sort of typifies man's efforts to save himself. Now, there's some debate about why start with Babylon in this historical context because Assyria was the great world empire. Babylon at certain points in time in this history oh and that reminds me, John reminded me I answered a question wrong yesterday wasn't thinking correctly, Jonah was before this, so if any of you were here yesterday and heard me say Jonah was after this, that's not true, Uh, Jonah was during the reign of Jeroboam II and so that would have been just before Isaiah started prophesying, but anyhow um, uh, Babylon had its moments during this of independence from Assyria and its moments of being reconquered by Assyria. Um, Maybe this is talking about Babylon in that context. Some people see that Babylon's fall was when the Assyrians reconquered them in 689. That's a pretty, there's a pretty strong uh, effort to try to see it in that way. I'm not too inclined to go with that. I think this is probably more 
the starting point of these prophecies because of what Babylon would become. Babylon was going to be the next great world empire and was the empire that was going to take Judah into captivity and then would fall by the hands of the Medes and the Persians in 539. I would slightly prefer that perspective. We know later on in 39 that Isaiah knew Babylon was going to be the one who would take Judah into captivity. And while Babylon wasn't an especially powerful kingdom, at this point it would become that. And so that's how I'm going to look at this, is Babylon as the future great empire and enemy, and the fall of Babylon as God brought it about in 539. And uh, But realize as a footnote, there is a perspective that this is more dealing with Babylon as a contemporary nation of Israel and how the Assyrians reconquered them in 689. Alright, anything you want to say by way of introduction to these prophecies against the nations? It's used as a symbol other places also, obviously as the bad city and the bad just for its wickedness. Yeah, especially Revelation 17 and 18. So yeah. you even here be somewhat of a principle there. I agree. If you want to find a nation that kind of typifies evil, because of Babylon's long history, I think that's as good a choice as you've got. Good point. Other thoughts? Alright, would somebody read 1 to 5? The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw... Lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, the tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters, his, musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Okay. What do you see happening here? An army coming? Yes, you see an army coming. Um wonder why that army was coming. They were called. <laughs> they were called by God, yeah. Uh, God's bringing his army against Babylon. I think that's what you ought to see here. Now, what things does God do to uh, bring the army? To call the army? Raise the flag. Yeah. Lifted up the flag and... Raised his voice. Raised his voice and... Waved his hand. hand. (laughs) As always, God doesn't have to break a sweat to even bring a mammoth army against Babylon. And so he brings his army that you see uh, boisterously coming, uh, the, the sound of many people, the uproar of the kingdoms gathered together. He's got his army coming from the far ends of the earth to destroy the whole land of Babylon. So you, the first picture you see is simply God um, convoking his army to come against Babylon. Comments and questions? Six to sixteen. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. 
Therefore all hands will fall in, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make moral men scarcer than pure gold, and mankind than the gold of Orphir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place, at the fury of the Lord of hosts, on the day of his burning anger. And it will be that, like a, hunt, a hunted gazelle, or like sheep, with none to gather them, he will, they will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is not just one specific day in all of history, but it's a type of day. It's a day when God brings a judgment. Here, it's the day of the Lord against Babylon is coming. And what's the reaction of the people in 7 and 8? Yeah. Yeah. What would, what would be another? Well, how would you summarize that? How are the people? terrified panic stricken I mean wow this is just overwhelming as they see this army they arrive like a woman in labor Uh, this is just a, a horrifying thing as they see the day of the Lord coming and it's going to burn them up and exterminate the sinners you see judgment language like the stars not showing their light the sun being dark the moon being dark It's like the lights are going out for Babylon. And what is the reason given for God's punishment of Babylon? Evil and iniquity. Evil, iniquity, Arrogance. arrogance, pride, haughtiness, and ruthlessness. Again, so much emphasis on pride as the reason for God's judgments. And so he would punish them to the point that so many people would die in battle that men would be scarcer than the gold of Ophir. (laughs) Something very rare and prized. There'd be few people left. The heavens would tremble. The earth would be shaken because of God's fury against Babylon. And uh, they would really have no protection uh, in verse 14. They would have no escape in verse 15. They would have no mercy in verse 16. Um, you see God bringing the armies together to fight and verse 14 you see them scattering as they flee. God's judgment against what will become the great Babylonian Empire. Comments and questions? Seventeen to twenty-two. Behold, I am going to stir up the nations against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will be their bows will bow down to the young men. 
the light has attached me to the world, nor their eyes see the church. And that one of the beauty of the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, the glory of the Chaldean Christ, to be when God overthrew Christ, to be as when God overthrew Christ in the world. It will never be inhabited or live in it, it lives in from generation to generation. Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But but desert creatures will lie down there, and the houses will be full of owls. Ostrich will also live there, and shaggy goats will fall up there. Hyenas will howl in their tent and their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her faithful time will come soon, will also come soon, and her days will be will not be long. So who is God going to bring against the Babylonians here? The Medes. We know that they were together with the Persians historically. He says who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. What does that mean? They won't take bribes to, to, be, to spare the victims. Yes. You can't buy them off. They are intent on destruction and cruelty. They will not have compassion. Their eye will not pity. And Babylon will become like what? Wow. The once great city would be reduced to nothing. Now, as often happens in <laughs> biblical prophecy, it didn't happen in one moment. The process over a period of, of centuries that Babylon was brought to this point, starting with the Medes, invading in 539 but over a period of centuries Babylon got to the point where do you see the picture in 20 to 22 I mean here is the great ancient Babylonian city the cradle of civilizations with all the culture and sophistication and what do you see in 20 to 22 nobody lives there what kind of place is it desert Abandoned. You know, a wilderness just reverts to a place where who who does live there? Yeah, you see the critters in 21 and 22, just kind of a forlorn, forsaken, desolate tract of land. You know, from from the, the height of civilization to being abandoned to the owls, the ostriches, the shaggy goats, the hyenas, and the jackals. Which are not sophisticated animals, more like desert, uh, wilderness sort of animals. Isn't that a tremendous come down for a great city like Babylon? For a major fall. Yeah, an enormous fall, absolutely. Thoughts and comments on this? Do you get that picture really clearly in your mind in 20 to 22? Because I've got something I want to read to you. Some of you have heard me do this before. There was a book written, I think, in the early 30s, 1930s, by a guy named Edwin C-H-I-E-R-A, Kiera. I don't know. So He's an archaeologist or an anthropologist, something along that line. He wrote a book called They Wrote on Clay. He clearly is not writing from a Christian perspective. You'll see that. This is from a letter to his wife that's in the prologue of this book. Now, I want you to, you know, make sure you understood 20 to 22. (coughs) 
that he talks about going to the, the place where ancient Babylon was. He writes, This evening I made my usual pilgrimage to the mound covering the ancient temple tower. It is only a few hundred yards from our camp and it is pleasant to ascend to the summit of that tower which dominates the landscape. This I generally do in the evening after supper in the bright moonlight. Today I've come with the ambition of jotting down my impressions for the spectacle moves me deeply. Now I'm just going to read certain parts of this just to try to save space. Uh, actually I think uh, reading it all would, would even get the, the idea more strongly but a dead city I have visited Pompeii and Ostia and I have taken walks along the empty corridors of the Palatine but those cities are not dead they are only temporarily abandoned the hum of life is still heard and life blooms all around they are but a step in the progress of that civilization to which they have contributed their full share and which marches on under their very eyes here only is real death not a column or an arch still stands to demonstrate the permanency of human work. Everything has crumbled into the dust. Then he later says, under my feet are some holes which have been burrowed by foxes and jackals. At night they descend stealthily from their haunts in their difficult search for food and appear silhouetted against the sky. This evening... They, seem, they appear to sense my presence and stay in hiding, perhaps wondering at this stranger who has come to disturb their peace. The mound is covered with white bones which represent the accumulated evidence of their hunts. Then later he says a jackal is now sending forth his howl, half cry, and half threat. All the dogs of the Arab village immediately take up his challenge and for a moment the peace is upset by howling barking. It is now quite dark. Caution would advise descending immediately to avoid the danger of falling into one of the many trenches, but a certain fascination holds me here. I should like to find out a reason for all this desolation. Why should a flourishing city, the seat of an empire, have completely disappeared? Is it the fulfillment of a prophetic curse that changed a superb temple into a den of jackals? Did the actions of the people who lived here have anything to do with this? Or is it the fatal destiny of mankind that all its civilizations must crumble when they reach their peak? And what are we doing here trying to wrest from the past its secrets when probably we ourselves and our own achievements may become an object of search for peoples to come? Isn't that incredible? You know... I mean, here's a prophecy that we can see fulfilled in our generation. As you see the, you know, desolate wilderness that was Babylon. It's exactly what he pictures in chapter 13. As far as I can tell, this author had no awareness of Isaiah 13. But how ironic that he should describe it in these terms. Comments and thoughts? Pretty cool, isn't it? I have it written down that uh, evidently Alexander once thought of making Babylon the metropolis of his empire, and he had uh, ten thousand workmen at, at that time employed for two months simply to clear away the rubbish around the foundation of the temple, uh, and noted that he was carried off to an early death. Now, whether there's a connection, I don't know. That amount of work just to try to clear off something to, to show what was once there. Wow. When God decides to bring down a great empire, he does it 
very effectively, very permanently. All right, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. I think that Isaiah is seeing God's destruction of Babylon as an act of compassion for his people as he brings them back. When Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, the Israelites were released. And probably this uh, deliverance from Babylon is a shadow then of the greater spiritual deliverance in Christ as they possess uh, the peoples as their inheritance. As uh, really through the gospel, the foreigners are conquered to the obedience of Christ. So that's just a little section kind of in the middle of the prophecy against Babylon showing that Babylon's day was a blessing to the Lord. How are we doing uh, temperature-wise in here? How many are too hot? You okay? How many? Okay, good. Very good. How many are too cold? Miss Debbie. She uh, did not get uh, jeans for warmth out of her family, I guess. All right, uh, three through eight. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been disloyal, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how, how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. So here's sort of the reaction on the earth when the Babylonian king is cut down. How do they feel? Yes. And? Relieved. Why? Because their oppressor is ceased. Yes. The Babylonian emperor was oppressing the nations, oppressing the peoples on the earth. When he was brought down, there's great rejoicing. There's a sigh of relief (laughs) as God just breaks the staff of the wicked, you know, he just takes you know, the Babylonian empire and breaks them to pieces the empire that used to strike the peoples in fury, verse 6, that subdued the nations, now the whole earth's at rest they break into shouts of joy even the cypress and the cedars say now that the king of Babylon's been brought down, we don't have to worry about any tree cutters coming you know, what a relief on earth when God brings the Babylonian emperor down to defeat. Comments and questions? Interesting thought of him taking up a taunt. Uh, although this taunt is not like I would have expected it to be. You know, it's not really so much 
pointing out the superiority of the people as much as the emphasis on God. That is true. Can you see why there would be a reason that these people would want to take up a taunt against the king of Babylon? Why? Well, it's always easy to kick somebody when you're down. And especially, who do you like to kick? The one that was kicking you. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you've been oppressed and unfairly treated and the tables are turned and you get to kick the one who is kicking you, there's a sort of a satisfaction in that. I think you see that a little bit here. Just the relief. Wow, what a relief. Now he's the one who's down. You may even see it a little stronger in the next section. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, I think there's a certain satisfaction to see the big shots cut down to size. You know, they're kind of getting what's coming to them. Other thoughts? I don't know that we're forced to say it was okay here. But there are some passages that do almost that where it clearly is. Like the fall of Babylon in Revelation where the hallelujah smoke rises up forever and ever. Rejoicing in God bringing the wicked down. You know, rejoicing in the execution of God's justice. So, in some senses, this is okay. And here it may almost be more descriptive. This is almost a way of just showing the great fall of Babylon. And, and just the impact of that. I mean, you know, if I fell, nobody would care. I haven't never done anything. The king of Babylon falls. Whoa, he had a big impact. The whole earth is just breathing a collective sigh of relief. Other thoughts? Okay, 9 through... uh, Let's do 9 to 11. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming, stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth, it is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggots spread under you, and worms cover you. (laughs) So, of course, when the emperor is uh, brought down, where does he go? At Sheol to the realm of the dead. We're picturing the entrance of the Babylonian emperor into the realm of the departed spirits. And how do how do the the inhabitants of this realm react to this new guy coming in? Mock him. Yeah, so what do they do? How do they mock him? Well, they kind of have this big assembly of all the other mighty kings before him, which is probably kind of a slap in the face, like, yeah, you're just like they are. Yes. You know, even you have become, been made as weak as we. You've become like us. <laughs> you know, some of these guys who were down there already weren't nearly as important on the earth as what the Babylonian emperor had been. 
But you know, death has a way of sort of taking away all human distinctions. You know, when you die, well, you know, a rich man's body decomposes just like a pauper's, and their spirit is not treated with any greater, you know, pomp and circumstance either. So Sheol in self-importance. Uh, he said, you know, they say uh, maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. You know, so uh, the worms of death bring everybody to the same level. You know, you may be important in this life. You die. It's like, oh, now you're just like one of us. You're as weak as we are. Logan. So is she all Hades or hell? I think we should see here sort of the realm of the dead. So think the Hades? Uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but I think here, seeing the realm of the dead, almost like the grave, but like envisioning these people sort of in some sort of a, of a place where you go once you die. We probably don't know nearly as much about all of that as we think we do, so... And, and perhaps, I mean, I don't know that, yeah, I wouldn't try to argue that this is something that literally happens. I, I don't know. It's a, I mean, it's, a, it's at least a graphic way of depicting the fact death pretty well evens out everybody. Other comments and thoughts? Twelve to fifteen. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the lowest depths of the pit. This really makes you think about the pride and arrogance of the Babylonian monarch and what God does to him. You know, what was the Babylonian king's attitude here? Yeah! Man, I am somebody, I will ascend to heaven, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, you know, I'll ascend above the heights, I'll make myself a great one. You know, you see the pride, the lifting up of oneself, the attempt to try to gain status and greatness and all of that, and what's the verdict? Nice try. <laughs> Where does he end up? lowest depths of the pit. Yes, in the recesses of the pit. You go from the attempt to make yourself super great to being on the lowest possible point in death. That's how God ends pride. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yeah. <laughs> he fell pretty hard. You know, if you're not very high up, the fall doesn't hurt quite so bad. But the higher up you get, the more that uh, fall hurts. Mason. I was going to say, it's interesting how much the real Babylon actually reflected these um, 
these sentiments that are attributed to the king of Babylon here. But then I realized almost every civilization makes these claims at one point or another in their history, um, including our own. And, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of a, an object lesson to us that you gotta, you got to watch what you say because, you know, A, it's all been said before, and B, it never turns out that way. Yes. That's right. I mean, it reminds you quite a bit of Ezekiel 28 with the king of Tyre, who did a rather similar self-exalting kind of a thing. So yeah, I think you're right. I think that humanity tends to exalt itself in pride. And God tends to cut that right back down. I suppose you know that this passage is sometimes misused to talk about Satan. I don't think it's talking about Satan, so... Isn't the word Lucifer being based on? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Why are they coming about Satan? I have no idea. Because he originally thought he was going to be an angel. So we would have had angelic names. That's, that's the way they make it fit this, but I mean, there are more problems than that. Yeah, I thought the Catholic neighbor of mine thought that before. I pointed out the only spot in the Bible itself that uses the name Lucifer and it was talked about in Babylon. All right, comments and questions through 15. I think it's kind of cool how, you know, if we try to rise up, we'll be brought down. But if we lower ourselves, we'll be brought up. Jesus said that often, didn't he? Yeah, it's exactly right. It's, It's so amazing. And if we could only learn that lesson, humble ourselves. John? I think oftentimes success can be a test. Um, you know, God may give us blessings or, or success, and I'm thinking about, you know, our nation, how, how prideful we've become. You know, we beat the British or whatever. You know, you could look at that and you could say, you know, we did that, you know, and get prideful about it. So I, I think when we when we do have success, it's how we, how we look at that that determines the next step of pride that we'll, we'll have, and, you know, we keep building that movement. Yeah, exactly. Other comments? Which ruler of Babylon would this be? Do we even know? Well, I don't know that he's really trying to look specifically at an exact ruler of Babylon, more just the Babylonian rulers as a whole. The nation of Babylon. I mean, you can certainly think of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest ruler of Babylon. Uh, The last one, I think, was what, Nabonidus, and sort of Belshazzar took over. But I I think it's more just the Babylonian emperor as a a whole. You can see, from a physical perspective, how it would be easy for them to feel that way. They and, you know, you mentioned Tyre. I mean, the walls around this city were arguably, you know, impregnable. And, And the same with the fortress of Tyre. Yet we see their end. Yeah. And, and we, we do the same thing today with, with uh, different things about ourselves, whether it be you know, our status or our wealth or, or what, whatever. Yeah. Human accomplishment and power leads to pride. So easily. I mean, the most dangerous time for us is when we're being successful in some sort of a human way. You know, when we have strength, when we have accomplishments. 
because it just seems like that's just an automatic transition to pride. Maybe we should pray for failure. Amen. Other thoughts? Sixteen to twenty-three. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert, who overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stone of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth, fill the face of the world with sins. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, says the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Alright. You see the reaction again of those who see him in 16 and 17. What did they think about? used to be. Is this not, is this the man who made the earth tremble, shook kingdoms, made the world like a wilderness, overthrew its cities? You know, here's the guy who is really somebody. And <laughs> now, you know, now he's been cast out of his tomb like a rejected branch. I mean, didn't even gain a decent burial, which is a great disgrace in the ancient world. I wonder if there's a contrast between the rejected branch here and the branch of 11.1. You know, here's the branch that got thrown out, and there's the branch that gave life to God's people. He doesn't get a decent burial. You might compare 53.9, where Jesus is with the rich man in his death. He gets a decent burial. But it's just, you know, I mean, the whole thing goes back to this idea of of the fall and disgrace of greatness. You know, this great Babylonian monarch shamed, worthless, weak, impotent. God says, I'll rise up against them in 22 and 23. And he will sweep it with the broom of destruction. That's a really cool figure. You know, you just kind of see the Lord. What do you use a broom for, anyway? Dirt. Yeah. Trash. Rubbish. So you see the Lord taking the broom and sweeping Babylon into the dustpan and throwing it out. Again, isn't that a wonderful way to show the greatness of God? You know, when God wants to get rid of Babylon, He just needs His broom just sweeping them into the dustpan and throwing it out. You know, it's so easy for God to be powerful. Reminds me of Isaiah 40 a little bit. In verse 15, where the nations are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. 
you know, Babylon's little dust there, the guy has to sweep up and get rid of. Uh, great, powerful Babylon is nothing when the Lord gets finished. Comments and questions? This, this, uh, the last few verses really remind me of the story of Saul, where he, I mean, he kind of messed up being the king, and, and God took him out, and he didn't receive a decent burial. He was, you know, he was slain, and as David says about him in 2 Samuel 1, how the mighty have fallen. And I kept thinking that phrase as we were reading this. And, and I think what it just goes to show is that even among his own people, God does not tolerate. Or perhaps especially among his own people, God does not tolerate pride and self-reliance and things like that. You can say that again. <coughs> yeah. What's with the porcupine? <laughs> well, hedgehog in the New American Standard. Um, I think Babylon just becomes a wilderness, a wasteland. Uh, I don't know. Any place where it's inhabited by porcupines? I have no idea what a hedgehog is. Is that the same as a porcupine? I don't know. Uh, It just sounds like one of those critters that you only have in a desolate area. I don't know. Too warm yet? Everybody okay? Other comments through 23. Well, that's Babylon. Now we move on. Although there's not a separate oracle, really, here. So this is kind of an addendum to the prophecy against Babylon, rather ironically, 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrians in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will not? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So we're seeing a different nation here. Who? Assyria, the contemporary mighty empire, but we'd sort of pass over Assyria with four verses. Maybe sort of joining Babylon and Assyria together because they were the great Mesopotamian empires in succession. And uh, But Assyria here, what's going to happen? be overthrown. It's going to be broken, trampled, the yoke will be removed, and all of this happens because of what? Yes, do you see the emphasis? Just as I've intended, so it has happened, verse 24, just as I planned it, so it will stand. Verse 26, this is the plan devised against the whole earth. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has planned it, and who can frustrate it? The real emphasis here is 
everything goes according to God's plan and there's not anybody who is able to annul or overthrow God's plan. Nothing can frustrate that. What God does to the Assyrian is really just a sample of how God executes his plan. It, it is not up to the empires to determine what's going to happen in the world. It all depends on the Lord. So there's, this is a theme through Isaiah as well. The idea of God planning it and executing his plan. Seen that in chapter 10 as I recall. But here you just see it so strongly. And so it, it's kind of like almost a chess game. You know, God will, God will move the pieces around where he wants to. And he'll take some off the board and put others on the board, whatever he wants to do. So as he would destroy the, the Babylonian before that, he brings the Assyrian down. Comments and questions through verse 27. In 25, just saying that they serve their purpose. And now it's over. Yes. I think the idea is God was going to take the Assyrian yoke off of the back of his people. Because the Assyrians had been oppressing them, but then the Assyrian oppression was broken. Go back to chapter 10, which emphasized that point. You know, chapter 10 is already in detail talked about the destruction of Assyria. Here we're just kind of tacking that on to the end, getting that in this section of the judgments against the nations. Other comments and questions? Yes, J.D. Is that in, in my land, under my, uh, on my mountains, does that mean when he's going to do that to Assyria when they're in Israel and Judah geographically? I've wondered about that. Maybe that's a sign of the 185,000 being slain. Obviously, there's a sense in which the whole land and the whole mountains of the world are gods, but you would normally see that more as in Israel. So... Other thoughts? Being pointed out in 27, you see God's outstretched hand again. <laughs> yes. A good point. You know, I don't know anybody who really is too worried about my hand. You know? I <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, I just don't have a lot of power behind it, so, you know, it's probably not going to amount to too much. But God's hand, whoa. Everything depends on His hand stretched out, and when it's stretched out, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to deal with it? It's just so powerful. God is, you know, even. You know, a little thing like his hand packs a wallop that knocks the nations reeling. Comments and questions? Yeah, Shane. Do you really want to get on the opposite side of that? I don't. I mean, really, I mean, we've seen throughout this whole entire book how God has said, Israel, you said, Assyria, you said, Babylon, you said, I'm wiping you out, I'm destroying you. And the city gets up, it was blessed in its hand. Do we really want to be on the side that has that as his enemy? I think not. Yeah. Over in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is a very true statement. 
because it, I, I just like because it's like that you're falling into the hands of the living God. He's still alive and he's still able to be the punishment and that's thing that I want to contribute Absolutely, yes. Good points. Other comments? It may not seem so real to us because we just envision the downfall of a nation as their loss of power, not the destruction of lots and lots of people. That people died when those things uh, came about. The, people, the, the nation just didn't you know, make the wrong trade and lose all the money. Uh, this affected individuals as God's final destruction. Absolutely. Other thoughts? What did you say in your Well, I wonder if it's like the oppression of the Assyrian over the Israelites. Okay. Other thoughts? So that's the first oracle, Babylon, small parenthesis, Assyria. Now here's the next one, 28 to 32. In the year that Ahaz died came this proclamation. All Philistia do not rejoice because the rod which used to beat you is now broken. For the serpent stock will produce a viper. Its offspring will be a flying dragon. While the firstborn of the poor are grazing and the destitute are resting in safety, I shall make your stock die of hunger, and then slaughter what remains of you. Howl, gate, shriek, city, totter, all Philistia. For a smoke is coming from the north, and there are no deserters in those battalions. What reply will be given then to the messengers of that nation? That Yahweh founded Zion, and there the poor of his people will find refuge. You know, some of these oracles are a bit cryptic, especially the brief ones. You don't have a lot of context here. It's an oracle against who? Philistines. And you know all about the Philistines. We've heard of them. Compared to Israel, where were the Philistines located? Yeah. Down to the lower left of Israel. They're on the coastline. (laughs) And, um, well, do not rejoice, O Philistia all of you because the rod that struck you is broken. The first question we have is wonder who the rod that struck them is and what it means about them being broken. You know, what is the uh, point of that? There's a few chairs over here if you want them, Wayne, or you can stand either way. Uh. And uh, so, yeah, what's the rod that struck them? Maybe. But, I mean, that was a long time ago. It seems to be Ahaz because he says it right there, but that doesn't seem right. I don't think it is. I do think this oracle is connected with the death of Ahaz, but I don't think the death of Ahaz is the rod that struck them. Mason? Well, Ahaz was the one that was interested in alliance with Assyria. And so his alliance with Assyria brought about that huge sweep of destruction, including the the flooding of Judah and all that stuff, which would have had an impact on the Philistines. So the death of Ahaz would then create a new political environment in which Assyria was not necessarily a threat. And in which perhaps Judah would join an anti-Assyrian alliance coalition. 
And so it was a good opportunity for the Philistines to think again about trying to band together with some people against Assyria. I suspect the rod that struck them was the death of an Assyrian king. The Assyrians were the threat at this point, were the ones that had struck them already. Maybe Shalmaneser III's death in 721, maybe that's the idea. But he said, don't rejoice in the destruction of the rod that that, that struck you, because what's going to happen? Well, he says, from the serpent's root, a viper will come out. Its fruit will be a flying serpent. The rod may have been broken, but worse will come. The successors will be worse. It's not going to be a blessing that the rod is broken because the, the, from, the, from the serpent, from the viper, serpent's root, the viper will come out. And so God is going to bring terrible destruction against the Philistines anyway. In fact, in verse 31, he encourages the Philistines to weep and to wail and to shriek, for smoke comes from the north, and there's no straggler in his rank. The northern enemies were the Mesopotamian enemies that would have to come around the Fertile Crescent and invade from the north. Here I think the Assyrians. There may have been the death of an Assyrian emperor, but there's still going to be smoke come out of the north, unstoppably, not a straggler in the ranks. How then will one, in verse 32, answer the messengers of the nation? You know, here are these messengers that I think the Philistines sent to Judah when Ahaz died. The ambassadors, trying to work out some kind of a deal with hopefully a new anti-Assyrian king, namely Hezekiah, to come up with some sort of a, 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 a you know, coalition to fight against the Assyrians. So how do you answer these ambassadors that come to try to get you, Judah, to join the Philistines in rebelling against Assyria? Well, what's the answer? trust the Lord the Lord has founded Zion the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it we trust God the answer when the Philistines come knocking at your door wanting you to join the alliance we don't need to we trust God he's our security he's who we have as our refuge don't be persuaded to join in the international politics Just tell the Philistines they can go back home. Now, that's cryptic. I mean, that's four, five verses that we're trying to figure out. But I think this is the Philistines temporarily rejoicing when the Assyrian king died, taking advantage of the death of King Ahaz to send their messengers to try to get Judah this time to join an anti-Assyrian coalition. And God's saying, first of all, don't rejoice because it's going to be worse. And there's still going to be, you know, unstoppable Assyrian armies coming out of the north. And secondly, tell the ambassadors, no, we just trust God. We go back to the basic theme of Isaiah, which is the theme of trust in God, not in anything else. All right, comments and questions on that or other interpretations you want to offer. That's pretty cryptic string. The last verse of chapter 14, verse 32, is, that, is this the reaction of Israel, or is this what he 
pills than they should do. I think it's what God says they ought to answer. Yeah. Did Assyria keep oppressing the pills? Yes. And you can see that even in uh, Isaiah 20. They kept what? <coughs> oppressing the Philistines. Did, did Babylon? Later. Could it be the fall of Assyria that they were rejoicing over, not realizing that the root or that springing up would be Babylon that would come and do the same? Only if he's dealing with this prophetically, because Assyria didn't fall until a number of years after Isaiah. Right. But that could be. In the reverse order in the previous chapters yeah. in, in the judgments. It would not be impossible. The only reason I would say that is because he just addressed Assyria, and if and if Felicia was looking at this and say, "Oh, great, there goes Assyria," not that it's even happened, but you see how that in chronological order almost would say. But I don't think these are too chronological. I do see that, and, right. and some of these things are interpretive. I see this whole section as mostly dealing with Assyria as the enemy. I see Babylon as the issue more in the latter half of Isaiah, as far as the immediate issue that he's dealing with with the people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see the Assyrian threat a lot through these chapters. For good or for bad. I mean, you know, uh, that is the issue. I mean, when you read this, you're kind of seeing some principles, but you're not sure exactly how they apply. And and uh, I don't know. I, I think continue to evaluate as we go through this and see what you think. But I'm more comfortable with seeing this as um, still dealing with the Assyrian threat. Because that's kind of what I see as the theme through these chapters. But I could be wrong. Consider the possibility. And that would be a nice thing if, you know, Assyria was broken, but the Babylonians are on the scene. Yeah. Certainly the lesson would be, regardless of what happens in the world powers, unless you're relying on the Lord, don't rejoice in any army or any takeover or anything else because it's not going to be your salvation. Yes. Good point. Yeah. I think, well, it's where the Assyrians, the Babylonians, any Mesopotamian power came from, but I think you're Assyria from my interpretation. They're coming here going around and down. Yeah. You know, Assyria and Babylon were basically uh, to the uh, east, to the right of Judah and Israel and Philistia. But they couldn't just come across the desert and let them work. So they come up around that fertile crescent and they come down into Israel, Judah, Philistia, or wherever. Um, when, so you're saying that Philistines might be rejoicing because the king of Assyria has died? Yes. And would that be in the same year as they have though? No. I don't think so. Is something you say, stop rejoicing? I think so. Instead of, instead of saying, don't rejoice when this happens, it's almost like, stop now. What well, comes, up, comes to me? Now. Well, I think he's saying, don't rejoice because the rod that struck you oh. is broken. Don't rejoice because of opportunities that you think will give you the advantage over the Assyrians. Ben? So the first half of 30 would be what Philistia is saying, and the second half of verse 30 would be God's response to that? Yeah, I don't know about that. Um... I mean, I think that ultimately God will bless the helpless and he'll punish the prideful. But yeah, 30 is more difficult for me. It's a cryptic one. 
You know, several of these will be. We'll get into a few of these that are pretty easy, and a few of these are like, what is he saying? And so, I, you know, I may have the whole wrong picture, but that's the clearest it comes to me is kind of the idea I'm presenting. Yeah, John. Chapter 20 talks about Sargon, the yes. Assyrian king, coming in against Ashdod, apparently on his way down to Egypt. Yes. So, I mean... Later, a little later than this, from my perspective. Right, yeah. but there it's made clear that, that they are oppressed by the Assyrians. A- exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 20. Who is that for Shaman? Uh, Sargon, and then Sennacherib. I believe I'm right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, the question. In the universe 31, does the know will be alone at his appointed times? What does that mean? Say it again. Universe, yeah, verse 31. Yeah. And no one will be alone at his appointed times. Whoa. What do you got? New King James. New King James. Okay. I prefer the New American Standard. The last half for smoke comes from the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. I think it's the idea, it's relentless, it's unstoppable, the invasion you can't do anything about. That's a really big... <laughs> That's better. But Hebrew is tough, a lot of translator discretion. That makes Yeah. Other comments and questions? Okay, let's do 15 also and then we'll take a break. Somebody read 15. Somebody who likes to read names of cities. <laughs> the oracle concerning Moab. Surely and I are of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely and I cur of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple and to Zibon, even to the high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Menabon. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets they have driven themselves a sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone's willing, dissolved in tears. Eshbon and Elayla also cry out, their voices heard all the way to Jehaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, the soldiers of the Bithyn. My heart cries out for Moab, the speeches are as far as Zobar, and Eglat Shoreshaya, where they go up to the ascents of Uhir weeping. Surely on the road to Helena, for a name, there is a cry of distress over the river, for the waters of Nimrim were desolate. Surely the grass is withered, the tender grass died out, there is no green thing. Therefore the abundance which they required and stored up, they carry off over the brook of Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab, its wail goes as far as Eglin, and it's wailing even to fear of him. For the waters of Diamond are full of blood. Shaliel will bring added words upon Diamond, a land upon the fugitives of Moab, and upon the women of the land. So, this is the oracle against <laughs> Moab. Uh, the Moabites came from whom? No, not Esau, that's the Edomite. Lot's daughters. That was Moab, and who came from Lot's daughters? Ammon. The Moabites lived where? Right hand side of the Dead Sea. Kind of opposite the Philistines. So you've had the, the power on the west, now the power on the east. 
And what's he saying about Moab here? In the night they're going to be devastated. Yeah. In one night, an attack of catastrophic proportions and Moab will be devastated. They'll be weeping and wailing and doing everything that goes along with that because of the devastation of their city, uh, of their nation, and every city in the nation practically seems to be mentioned here. As he makes this uh, prophecy very concrete for them, he actually, in verse 1, it's the cities in the south of Moab. In verse 2, it's the cities in the central part of uh, Moab. And then in verse 4, the cities in the north. Uh, but but it really makes it vivid as you see city after city falling and wailing. Even Isaiah himself, or perhaps God, you should see here, as the I in verse 9, for example, is God. Uh, my heart cries out for Moab. I mean, Moab's sort of an enemy. When God or Isaiah cries out for Moab, it must be bad. You know, it's, it's that severe. You see the refugees frantically trying to save whatever they've managed to accumulate in verse 7, you know, carrying off their stuff in a knapsack across the brook, the cry of distress. You see the waters of diamond are full of blood. Diamond and blood are a play on words. And it kind of reminds me of 2 Kings 3, where Moab saw a mirage of blood when Jehoshaphat dug, or Jehoram, I think, dug those, uh, uh, and Jehoshaphat, uh, dug those trenches. Now the blood is Moab's blood, as uh, they are being destroyed. So this is a judgment prophecy against Moab. Very forceful and graphic. Comments and questions. Why? Why? Why what? Why is Moab being destroyed? Yes. We'll find out in chapter 16. This is the first half of the Moab prophecy. Good question. Here all we really see is the judgment and and just the, the reaction. You know, but he, he does this before he comes to the why. But I think we'll find out. Yes, Matt. Uh, I, I like the last verse of the chapter, uh, verse 9, where it talks about the remnant that kind of escaped from Moab, uh, but they're eaten by lions, as opposed to the remnant that escaped from Judah and how, how they're blessed. Yeah. That's bad when you escape and, you know, <laughs> what is that in, uh, is it Amos when you run from the lion and uh, run into a bear, you know, or whatever? It's bad luck, you know. <laughs> translated this Iglath Shalishaya or whatever Logan said he did a pretty good job with that um, and I don't know uh, maybe it should be a place name because like a three year old heifer I have no idea how to explain 
So I think I personally would prefer it being called a place name, but you know. They did, don't we? <laughs> oh, we've got some weird names too. <laughs> Say that again. Yeah, the same city is mentioned again in Jeremiah forty-eight thirty-four. Okay, thank you. Kind of a similar context, talking about Moab. So, probably sounds like it's probably a city. Yeah, that's my guess, but I do have a standard translator's guess as well. So. Are there questions and comments? Okay, that was three chapters uh, in one sitting. That's a little easier when they're shorter and uh, these prophecies against the nations, but we're doing well. So let's take a 15-minute break, and then we'll come back and do 16.